we want to welcome you to the Love First podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you are returning, thank you so much for liking, subscribing, and sharing. Thank you for engaging with us each week and inviting others to join us. If this is your first time, you are in for a great treat uh, this evening. But I want to remind you of the purpose of this podcast. Our mission is to catalyze courageous conversations that revolutionize the way we love each other. We believe that having conversations that help us think outside the box, receive new perspectives, can make all of our conversations better, more productive, and healing. This evening, uh, our guest is Jerry Mitchell, a, uh, an award-winning uh, journalist and reporter. And we'll get to Jerry in a few moments, but thank you again for joining us for the Love First podcast. Okay, Jerry, welcome. We're so thankful that you are with us and that you have made time for us. Um, sure. You are a seasoned journalist. You have launched your own enterprise that uh, you'll be talking to us about in a little bit. But in 2018, you published a book, Race Against Time, A Reporter Reopens the Unsolved Murder Cases of the Civil Rights Era. And so we're going to ask you to just walk us through that journey a little bit and perhaps just begin by telling us about yourself, how you got into reporting, and then maybe open up that uh, evening in the theater in 1989 that changed your life. Sure, sure. Well, I, uh, I'm pretty simple about, about uh, how I got into uh, reporting is I was, well, in high school, I was a career day thing. And so they, uh, one of them was journalism. And so I decided to sit in on that. And the guy was barely graduated from high school, you know, <laughs> for those deals. But I was like, well, this sounds interesting. And, and uh, so I ended up signing up for a journalism class, you know, and well, I started working on the newspaper, a high school newspaper when I was a junior. And then, uh, anyway, and then senior, when I was senior, I was at her, oh. uh, the Tiger Times. Right. Come on. You got <laughs> a hard-hitting publication, right. the Tiger Times. <laughs> and, uh, college. And, and then when I went to Harding University, uh, I, was, I was one of the editors there of, of the Bison and uh, the news editor there. And uh, I think they were... I think we were worried what would happen if I was the editor. <laughs> we were there at the same time. I, I, I think that uh, you did a great job, by the way. Well, thank you. I, I was usually making fun of the administration, which I'm, I know they didn't appreciate, but anyway. <laughs> oh, goodness. We're so, having, we're having, we're, I, I was having way too much fun in those days. <laughs> where did you meet Karen? I met, uh, Karen, I met uh, at the newspaper. I mean, literally at the newspaper. So that's where she and I, she and I met and, and married. Um, 
So yeah, we met. That's the you know the typical Harding thing, right? You know, right. I walked her back to her dorm, you know, one night, and that kind of began the relationship. So that's uh, awesome. That's awesome. Uh, I met Susan during Pledge Week, and uh, she was wearing a rabbit suit. So I didn't really get a full comprehensive view <laughs> of who I was now interested in. Uh, how did you end up in Jackson, Mississippi? Well, I ended up in journalism, and then um, one thing I found out when I got into journalism, I got into journalism because I liked writing, and what I found out in, in, in doing it was I was really probably a better uh, reporter than I was a writer. Like, I had that kind of, for whatever reason, this kind of innate ability guy gave me, and uh, so anyway, I, long story short, I'm basically the guy that hired me for my first job. I'm from Texarkana, Texas, originally. And I worked for the little newspaper there, you know, as an intern. Mm. And so the editor who hired me there became the editor at the Clarion Ledger in Jackson and basically uh, hired me at the Clarion Ledger. So I, I worked, I started working at the Clarion Ledger in 1986. Okay. So, when you so, started working there, they how long was it until they put you on the court duty? A year, about a year and a half. I um, ended up. I was a bureau reporter for about a year and a half, which is immense fun in some ways, but also kind of you're gone all the time. You know what I mean? I mean, you're always on. Or put this way, you're you're not necessarily gone all the time. I didn't sort of spend that many nights away from home. But I definitely spent my days away. Like I would, you know, trail off in the morning and not get back till late. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So I did that for a year and a half. That was in Tupelo, Mississippi, actually. I spent a year and a half from then. And I basically covered that whole northeast section of Mississippi, which is just nuts. It's just, <laughs> it is. It's just, well, it's an interesting place. It's a fascinating place. Yeah. Uh, and I was always finding crazy stories. And then I, I, I started covering courts in October. Yeah, October of, of, uh, of 87. Mm -hmm. October of 87. And I had covered courts before. So I, I mean, it was very familiar. I was familiar with courts. Huh. So if we fast forward to 1989. Exactly. I'm in the lobby of a, uh, or not in the lobby, but in, uh, in watching a movie. Uh, actually, it was called Mississippi Burning, which is a fictional movie about the killings of the three young men, the civil rights workers, Mickey Schwerner and James Cheney and Andy Goodman, who were killed by the Klan and their bodies buried 15 feet down at Earth and Dam. And, no, I think I couldn't believe after I got done with it. I saw it with two FBI agents who investigated the case, which was kind of fascinating. Wow. And then a journalist who covered the case. And then once the movie was over with, all the other press left. You know, they kind of saw the movie and left. And I was, of course, I was writing a story too, but I literally stood there for, you know, probably... 45 minutes and listen to these three old men. And now I'm one of those, but uh, <laughs> three old men basically tell me the story of how, you know, because I was curious. It was like, 
wait, more than 20 guys involved, you know, Klansmen involved in this killing, but nobody's ever been prosecuted for murder. How does that happen? So they were kind of trying their best to explain it, even though it didn't really have an explanation. So. Yeah. So when you see this movie and, you know, you are not unfamiliar with kind of the details or the highlights. Uh, I knew nothing about it. Okay. No, no. I knew nothing about it. I knew nothing. Yeah, nothing. But then now you're, you watch the movie, which I've seen as well, but now you're with the actual people that are caricatured. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Well, the people that are, Roy Moore was the head that I sat by was the head of the FBI in 1964. So, you know, in Mississippi. So he was the one that was kind of coordinating all these efforts. And, and, you know, he would have his occasional commentary while the movie, it's like I get this occasional commentary while I'm watching the movie. It's During like, the movie. That didn't happen. And, and then, you, and, you, and then I remember this, uh, there's a black kid in the movie who happens to see something. And, uh, and so he's kind of a witness in real life, it was more than that. That's a whole nother story about that. But, um, but he was like, when he saw that scene and they're, they're driving, FBI's driving this kid around. He's got a cardboard box on top of his head, but he's got little eye holes. So, you know, he can see out. And uh, <laughs> he said, that really happened. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that's kind of fascinating. <laughs> So something triggered in you. You realized yeah. well, that this case I was, had never been solved. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. What, nobody got prosecuted for murder in that case? Come on. Yeah. So Triple exactly. murder and nobody gets prosecuted for murder? I mean, so let's I back up for our listeners and let's tell them the story a little bit. You know, sure. we've got Freedom Summer. Uh, That's right. In terms of context of this, yeah. this is Freedom Summer. This is when, like, up to a thousand college students are coming down south, mainly from the north and Midwest, but also from out west as well. And they're coming to Mississippi. The idea was Mississippi was kind of the iceberg, you know, or the idea was if we can, you know, basically bring change to Mississippi, then we can bring it, you know, to the rest of, you know, the rest of America. You know, it was just a, this idea by Bob Moses, who incredibly courageous guy and others involved in the civil rights movement that uh, and they, were uh, and so they trained up at Oxford, Ohio, and then came, came down. Yeah. yeah. And was, was a primary part of that voter registration? Part of it, main part of it was voter registration. They wanted to, to register African-Americans to vote, which of course in Mississippi, almost no African-Americans could vote in that point in time. And, 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 and let me back up and tell slight history on this, which yeah. is, um, cause people don't know this history and I certainly didn't get one into this is you had the civil war and you had reconstruction, which basically was a period of time in the South where a lot of African, where African-Americans were allowed to vote and hold office. Mm-hmm. And so you had a number of African-Americans. Mississippi was majority black at the time. So you had a, a lot of African-Americans, you know, holding office mm-hmm. uh, during this period of time. Uh, the whites began to kind of regain power 
by violence and by hook and crook, like they would, you know, put a cannon. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's true. They put it like a cannon in front of where people went to vote. Yeah. So in case anyone African American came, they would fire the cannon. Mm. You know that kind of stuff, and and then it would kill people. I mean, just lots of people, not just a few people, uh, and and whites as well that were you know. You know, because it, it, there were Southern Democrats and essentially anybody who was Republican was from North yes. or, or, or Black. You know, there, were, there was a racial distinction yes. uh, in party at that point. And so, um, anyway, they, they, they killed a bunch of people and had massacres left and right here in Mississippi, unfortunately. Yes. And then you had uh, followed that, like I said, the whites kind of regained, began to regain power. By hook and crook, and then by 1890, they go. You know, we want to make this legal. Like we're, we don't want to keep doing all this corruption and violence. But the violence by then had kind of begun to settle down. But they, really, we want to try to make it where we can get away with it <laughs> legally. <laughs> legally, and so they set up poll taxes and uh, a constitutional quiz and made the circuit clerks kind of the gatekeepers. Yes. So that's that. And so that they, and then basically they wiped everybody's name off the voting rolls in 1892. And so that cleared the way basically for then no African-Americans to be able to vote, even though they've been voting. Yes. Until that point. Yes. And so and that stayed in place. That was still in place in the 1960s. So I'm just, I just want to make that history clear. And I think that's important because as we see that brief window, 10 to 12 year window after right. Civil War, and then you see this almost 100 years, not quite exactly. 100 years, 90 some years, where all of that is shut down. And then you have this vision that, hey, this needs to be equitable. Let's go to work on this. And so right. you have James Cheney, who's from Mississippi, but yes. then you have Mickey Schwerner and his wife, Rita. You've got Andrew Goodman, uh, right. Mickey and Andrew from New York. They New York. Yeah. come from families that uh, were involved in the movement, essentially, up in, up in New York. Yes. And, and it's hard for us to grasp, I think, that when these college students were heading to do what they believed, believed was the work of justice, that their yes. families we're saying big goodbyes, big, yeah. big worries, big goodbyes. And in fact, well, was it, was it Mickey who, or Andrew that died the day after they got there? Yeah. Well, Andy, Andy did. I mean, he, he, he in fact, he sent, he'd already written a postcard to his mom and dad. There's actually a postcard that Andy wrote yes. his mom and dad. Yes. I just arrived here in Mississippi. The people are lovely, you know, very nice postcard to his mom and dad they, that they received after yeah. he disappeared. Yes. So let's go back to that. We're back on June 21st, 1964. First day of summer. Yep. So, yeah, that's right. So let's walk through this. June 21st, 1964. Uh, they are jailed briefly 
Well, they go to investigate the burning of a black church. Yes. They had had some freedom meetings or whatever you want to call them. And then uh, it's been burned to the ground. So they go to investigate. And while they're, when they're driving back through Philadelphia, when they're not quite Philadelphia, uh, they get pulled over, arrested and and jailed. Yeah. And then released. How long? Yeah. Till about 10.30 at night, is that right? Or yeah, they were arrested around 2.30, I believe, and then, and then they were released about 10.30 that night into the hands of basically waiting clansmen. They had a 37-mile trip to make yep. in their station wagon, yep. and that turns into... Uh, it turns into a high-speed chase, actually, down this old two-lane highway in Mississippi. Uh, Supposedly, they hit over 100 miles an hour. Uh, one of the cars of the Klan actually broke down because of that. Um, but uh, at a certain point, Cheney tried to evade them. Yeah. I'm guessing, this is a guess on my part, I think he turned off his lights. And then as he turned, I think, I think he thought they wouldn't see him. But, of course, you also have brake lights, you know, so... Uh, I think they saw him and, and then that was it. I think he was trying to, he was trying to figure out if he could, you know, get off the road and evade them. And then yeah. it, it didn't, it didn't work. So the yeah. way it appears initially is that you have just a straightforward clan killing, uh, uh, yeah, the they killed them. They killed them and buried their bodies 15 feet down the earthen dam. In earthen dam. They weren't found for 44 days. It was literally 44 days between when they disappeared and when their bodies were actually found. But there's way more to the story than that because oh, after arrests were made and brought forward, it kind of right. begins to bubble up. And as you begin. In yeah, they had a federal trial. Work on this. Yeah, they had a federal trial back in '67, and there were seven of the 18 were convicted. The rest of 18 walked away. So, tell us about like you know you're convicted of cold-blooded murder. You've got Alton Wayne Roberts, who's apparently the 26-year-old oh, yeah. trigger man. You've got a Cecil Price. You know, you've got the deputy sheriff. Yeah, but. Who served the longest sentence for these murders? Bowers did, actually. Bowers, Sam Bowers, the guy that ordered it, served about a six year, served about six years, actually. He was sentenced to 10, but he only served six. So we've, we've got Sam Bowers, who orders the killings, who Correct. serves approximately 72 months for a cold-blooded triple. Triple murder. <laughs> triple murder. Exactly. So that didn't set well with you. No, I mean, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I, I was just like, this is this is crazy. I mean, nobody got prosecuted. No, no one ever got prosecuted for murder. That's the part I couldn't believe. You know, it so was you went to work on it. What, where did it take you? Well, interestingly, as I began to work on that, as typically happens in reporting, um, something else crossed my path while I'm on this begin this journey. And that was something called the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission. Mm. Uh, 
So I don't know if you're like me, but if someone tells me I can't have something more like a million times worse, uh, there is the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission was the state segregation spy agency and it existed from the fifties into the seventies and the Mississippi legislature in 1977 voted to see all those records for 50 years, more than 132,000 pages of files. Wait, wait, and one of, wait, time out. Wait, yeah. wait, wait, wait. 132,000 pages of spying on Mississippians and yeah. we're going to make sure that it's legally closed until 2000 right. what 2027 yeah actually we're getting closer now <laughs> does that not kind of indicate that maybe we're trying to hide something well that's what i thought i mean that was my first inclination when i heard the legislature sealed it for 50 years i was like oh yeah there's something in there <laughs> but how'd you get a hold of it well, I began to go, well, the first records I saw were accidentally filed in an open court file. Mm. And that is what intrigued me. Like I, when I found that out and actually another reporter, not me, got the tip. Then I went over there and looked in court files and there they were, you know, and I'm like, it was basically this story of uh, uh, somebody working for the sovereign commission as a spy. We're in a civil rights office that summer mm -hmm. and uh, stole a bunch of documents and photographs of uh, Freedom Summer volunteers. Mm -hmm. And so when I was like, really? They're stealing stuff? This is really fascinating. And that kind of led to uh, my main source, which I'm able to reveal in my book, was a guy by the name of Ken Lawrence, who was uh, involved in trying to get the files reopened and yes. um, so i could constantly go to him because he had read all the files ah. and so that that it led to an interesting conversation because he and i are talking and i'm like wanting to know what else is in the files because all of a sudden i'm finding this out about this i'm like well what else is in there and uh he said we'll take a guess i'm like the state committed more theft. He's like, no, no, no. It's like, what's the worst thing imaginable? I said, well, murder. There's this long, silent pause. I'm like, and he's like, now do you get it? I go, oh, yeah. Wow. Wow. So why weren't they just why didn't he just give it to you to read initially? Why didn't he? Just well, he, he couldn't. He couldn't. These files were all sealed. And so it becomes a bit of a game that you play as a reporter. Mm. You know, you got someone with, you try to basically pump somebody for as much information as you can get out of them. Yeah. Uh, but obviously he couldn't go on the record because, you know, he was, uh, he'd get in trouble. He and can you see at some sense. point there's an FBI investigation into this. So anyway. Got it. So eventually you get a big break on the 11th of December, 1989, but this is in another case. So you, you start with mm -hmm. the Freedom Summer case, the Mississippi. Yeah, well, yeah, in October, uh, I think my story ran October of 89. What I found out was exactly another case, set, but Sovereignty Commission records was at the same time the state of Mississippi was prosecuting Byron D. Lebeck was the killing of the assassination of Meg Revers 
here in Jackson, this other arm of, of the state was secretly assisting Beckwith's defense, trying to get him acquitted. And nobody knew that. Right. And uh, so that was the story. I, I, again, at that point, I'm getting leaks. I'm, I'm not getting all the files, but I'm getting the leaks. Yeah. So that's, that's, what, that's the story I did at that point. So there were people who wanted to see justice, but the right. system was pushing hard to keep that from happening. Correct. And so initially, there's a case. Sam Bowers uh, goes to prison for six years. The bulk of the people involved in the killings of these three civil rights workers go free. They do. And you hit a dead end. Yeah, I just the, the state wasn't going to do anything. It was pretty obvious, and I at the same at about the same time as when I found out this stuff on Mega Rappers and did that story. And unlike the other story, which didn't really seem that you know the stories didn't seem to really go anywhere, this one started going somewhere. So and, let's transition to that story, June the twelfth, nineteen. 63, around midnight. Yeah, well, after midnight, Mega Rivers was assassinated in his own driveway in Jackson, shot in the back. So let's and think through this. We have, we have... Uh, same night President Kennedy uh, told, you know, delivered his first civil rights speech to the nation. Yes, and we're talking about a U.S. veteran who was... Yeah. In Normandy during Correct. World War II, Correct. fighting the abuses of racism in Europe, only Correct. to come home and mm -hmm. face this here, where, as you mentioned about voter suppression, he's on his way to vote, and a group of armed white men stop this World War II veteran from and other ones, too. There was a group of them, yeah. Right. They stopped them all. So he decides that he's going to do something about this. He goes to work on it. He and his wife, Merle, and their three children are in Jackson, and he yes. is working in voter registration. And then, of course, he is shot in the back in his driveway, dies there. Uh, uh, as you know, we've had the opportunity, you many times, my wife and I, three or four times, to go through that home, yes. to see it, to experience it. But that case also had never been solved. So tell us yeah. about you getting into the Medgar Evers case. Well, uh, so I wrote about it. I wrote the story that I mentioned, and it ran October 1st, 1989. And at the time I wrote that story, the odds were literally more than a million to one against the case being reopened or reprosecuted. There was no murder weapon, no transcript, uh, no evidence, nothing of any kind of value in the court files or in the vault where they kept evidence. It's all gone. Wow. And so, but Merle Evers, as you know, the widow of Megger Evers believed and she prayed and some amazing things happened. A couple months later, Jackson police are cleaning out a closet, having to find a box that contained the crime scene photographs of the killing of Megger Evers, including the fingerprint of Myron Dillebeck with lifted from the murder weapon. A few months after that, Marley Evers shared with me her copy of the court transcript that she had saved in a safety deposit box. And a few months after that, 
the prosecutor found the murder weapon in his father-in-law's closet. And I, and I tell the whole wild story, the wild journalism story on that, which, uh, you know, uh, another thing that's in my book, which you know, has not been out there. It's uh, just how we found out they had the gun is, is more than a little bit of a wild story. It is one of the wildest stories I know. Uh, do you want to tell it here or just tell, have people read the book? <laughs> I read the book. It's 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 a wild story. That's, I mean, I I don't know how to even encapsulate it other than basically Byron D. Lebeckwith was the reason we found out that, that they still had the gun. I mean, it's, it's you know you can't make it up. Yeah, I just tell people. So here we are. We've got this uh, World War II veteran shot in the back in his own driveway trying to do good of the community yeah. and because of the color of his skin that's dropped and and suppressed and we well, had police officers lying for Beckwith I might add that was not you know not helpful he had three different police officers claim they saw Beckwith in Greenwood Mississippi which is Greenwood is where Beckwith lived uh, about, you know, 900 miles away from Jackson. I'm trying to remember back in those days what exact miles would be. But anyway, yeah, something like that. A good ways away at about the same time the assassination took place. Yes. They, and they basically lied. Let's just be honest. They just lied. It's flat out lied because uh, he, he certainly did. Yes. And so you pursued that particular case and one of the things that you note in the book, and I want us to open this up a little bit. Sure. Is that there, and I've, and I've read some of this same history in Carolyn Rene DuPont's book, Mississippi Praying, mm -hmm. and right. as well as uh, some of Tim Tyson's writings. Yep. And the idea is that Mississippi had a marketing problem that the idea was is that the outside world and the, the United States kind of viewed Mississippi in the wrong light, that Mississippi needed the opportunity to tell its own story, that right. the state we were then is not the state we are now, that we've cleaned this up, that we're in better shape. And in an effort to supposedly kind of do all of that, it was also suppressing all of this evidence and all the opportunity for justice. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's, you know, I think there was a certain amount of that for sure. And, you know, and of course, the Sovereignty Commission was designed to, they had, a, they used to have a little thing that said Mississippi, the most lied about state in the union or something like that. You know, they were, they were very defensive about it. And Mississippians are still defensive. And I consider myself a Mississippian. I've lived there long enough, I guess. That at least they sort of consider me one now. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was just... You know, and understandably so, they're a little bit defensive, and I understand that because they've certainly been pointed at and harped on. And, and uh, in fact, I'll say this as an aside: I hope people don't read this book just as a uh, an opportunity to kind of wag their fingers at Mississippi and go, right. "Oh, that terrible Mississippi!" You know, that's right. Instead, I hope that the book is a bit of a mirror for people that yes. you know we can see you know, how we travel in the same paths, I guess. Right. Because I think that's one of the things that I took away from reading your book is, is that when you read it, if our eyes are open, we can not only see those same sins and shortcomings in our own lives, 
but we can yep. see them in our own locations. The place exactly. We no, live. I think that's very true. We got to be honest about that. I think that's the way, um, as you mentioned, not just individuals, but communities yes. can begin to heal. Yeah. Yes. So you have a breakthrough in that case, right? Correct. And tell us a little bit about the conviction of Byron Dillabequit. Uh, the conviction itself, uh, and by the way, let me add real quickly about Beckwith, because uh, we haven't talked about him at all. Absolutely the most racist person I ever spent serious time with. Horribly racist guy. So anyway, he hadn't shown you. I mean, he gotten worse probably from <laughs> the way he was in 63. Della Beckwith. How did What's you that? locate him, and how did you talk with him? Oh, well, I, I – Actually, it was thanks to an old New York Times reporter named Johnny Popham, mm -hmm. uh, who was this famed New York Times reporter. He used to cover the South for them, really before the Civil Rights Movement got fully cranked up. And, uh, but he was kind of a legend for New York Times. And I called him. He, he was still, I guess, had an office at the Chattanooga newspaper in Tennessee. And and I, they ended up patching me through to him. I didn't know to ask for him. And next thing I know, I'm talking to Johnny Popham. And he's, I, was, I said, well, you know, I, I, I knew he had a phone number, but I, I gathered it was unlisted because it wasn't indirectory assistance. That was back what we had back then was directory assistance. And so he basically promised to help me try and get the number. And then he called me back weeks later and had the number. I, mean, maybe, I can't remember how long. I guess it was weeks later. He called me back with the number. And uh, so, so what did you, I, do? did you just call back? So I called him out of the blue and we talked on the phone and I, I did, I did a story on him as well as other people kind of connected to, uh, to the case. You know, what are they up to now? He's got a really many profiles, not very long at all. Yeah. And, um, uh, anyway, I told him I'd, you know, uh, at a certain point, I called him, I guess it was in April. He and I just had talked on the phone for a while. And in April or so, I called him up and said, hey, I'd like to come talk to him in person because I was going to be up in Tennessee and uh, Nashville and figured, well, I'll just swing by and talk to this guy. Just swing and, by. Uh, and sure enough, he let, me, uh, he let me come talk to him. And so we spent about six hours, six hours talking. He lived in Signal Mountain, which is just outside of Chattanooga. Yeah. And, uh, and so, like I said, most racist person I've ever spent serious time with. You know, some people you get done, you feel like you need to go take a bath or shower or something. <laughs> did you get? That's what it felt like. Yeah. Did you get some insight though into the mind of? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And white absolutely. supremacy and all of that. He was a yeah. He was a part of what's called Christian identity, and some people get offended that it has the word Christian in it. And I'm like, okay. Look, that's what they call themselves. Uh, but they're, they're a part of Christian identity, which is, uh, so I'm going to tell this, it's very blunt and racist. What I'm describing is very racist and offensive. So hopefully you'll understand. I, I don't mean any of this, you know, myself. But they believe that Adam and Eve, this is their theology. They believe that Adam and Eve were white people. Hmm. They believe that all the non-white races are quote unquote mud people that were created on the sixth day and and they're like animals they have no souls and they believe that um 
believe that Jews, uh, I'll go ahead and tell this bluntly, this is awful, but this is what they believe. They believe that Eve had sex with the serpent, Satan, and that's where Jews come from. So they believe Jews are the literal offspring of Satan. So it's incredibly anti-Semitic as well as being horribly racist. So um, as we try to take that in for a moment, yeah, you, you are a person of deep faith. You, your faith has informed your love for justice and your willingness to put yourself on the line for the cause of justice. I remember my wife reminded me of this, that yeah. one time my wife and I were in the audience when you were giving a lecture and your parents were there. Oh, great. And someone had asked your, your mother how she felt about the work that you did and, and uh, her son receiving death threats. And I'll never forget this. Your mom said, you know, something about your tenacity and all of that. And in regard to the death threat, she said, I just had to put him in the hands of the Lord, right? Exactly. You have this deep heritage of faith, and yet what you are describing to us is a group co-opting faith. Absolutely. In well, let's be honest, the Klan has done that for years. I mean, yes. you know, they... they, they you know, what's one of their ceremonies is, is burning crosses, right? I mean, they, 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 it's, that's a religious ceremony to them. It sounds, you know, first, obviously, they use cross burnings to scare people, too. Yes, but we don't, we don't most of the time, we want to try to imagine that mm -hmm. people who murder college students that are helping exactly. register voters or people that would literally take a hunting rifle and shoot a young father in his driveway in the back, we exactly. have a tendency to think of those people as so far outside the norm that it is a shock to the system mm -hmm. for us to hear you as a reporter having sat with this person for six hours, listening to this person describe their theology. And, uh that's hard for us, but it's true. And, and, and that's what he talked about. And, and I mean, I could dive deeper and explain the various passages that they claim, you know, prove their racism, but it's really not necessary. I think those that people of faith understand that that's not what, you know, God's word teaches. And it, it's, uh, so you know, God is no respecter of persons as he makes clear. So after this six-hour conversation, where does it go from there? Oh well, it was it was it was getting dark, and uh, and so I thought, well, yeah, Signal Mountain. I'm way up on the mountain. And by the way, this is like Clan Haven. You know what I mean? I mean they they I didn't know all this going up, but it, this is like the Clan would still you know get on the street corners and you know you know intersections where people take up money at intersections. Yeah. Clan was still doing that in the eighties in Signal Mountain, and and by the way, in, in case you want a, an interesting reference, the other mountain right next to it is Lookout Mountain. That's right. Which Dr. King mentions in his "I Have a Dream" speech. I let it ring out from Lookout Mountain, right. which was a Clan stronghold. Wow. So you know, King King knew what he was referring to. You bet. Uh, when he mentioned Lookout Mountain. 
Yes. Yeah. And so he, anyway, walks me out. He insists on walking me out to the car. And I'm like, really? That's okay. <laughs> I think I'll find my way. So he walks me out to the car and goes, if you write positive things about white Caucasian Christians, God will bless you. If you write negative things about white Caucasian Christians, God will punish you. If God does not punish you directly, several individuals will do it for him. And so his wife had made me a sandwich. <laughs> I think you can guess what I did with a sandwich. <laughs> I didn't hang on. Didn't hang on to it. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So how does he end up coming to trial then? So, um, so that was in April of 1990. And he ended up getting, getting indicted in um, December of 1990. And then he fought extradition and then lost that battle and then was wound up in, back in Mississippi. And, wow. uh, yeah. and so eventually. Uh, yeah, eventually, February of 1994, he was convicted. A jury, by the way, uh, and it's in the book. Um, uh, I love talking to him, but, but the, uh, the foreman of the jury was an African-American preacher. Hmm. And, uh, in fact, he had memories of the King assassination. We're kind of interested because he lived in Memphis at the time. But, um, he said, and he said, cause they looked there the night before and I was very concerned and very worried. It, it was a, looked like a split jury, you know, no one was, you know, it was just like, Oh no, there's going to be another hung jury. And, at least on the initial case here, I, I felt a lot of burden on myself. I probably shouldn't have, but I did. I felt it was because probably because it was the first case. <clears throat> if if it was a hung jury, I was gonna. I would felt like I was gonna be blamed. You know what I mean? Like Jerry, it's your fault if you hadn't have done that. You know, I felt like you know that's probably selfish on my part. You know, but that's the way I felt. You were and, invested. Yeah, I, I felt like, oh, man, I'm going to get blamed, you know, if there's a hung jury. And the next, you know, so I was just totally couldn't sleep at all. Um, but I will tell this quick story. Um, that night, Murley, it was like a monsoon that night, by the way. That night, Murley and Evers, Evers and I were talking on the phone almost every night um, after, you know, kind of, I'd hear what she had to say about the trial and I'd tell her what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were, we could tell the jury was split and all that stuff. And she told me this story that she had never told me before mm. where uh, when Megger was assassinated in the driveway that after he was, then came these curiosity seekers. And this was a black neighborhood that was in the edge of a white neighborhood, like a white neighbors, you know, literally right there. And so there were some teenagers who were white, who were curious and came, you know, came over. And then of course, later the police and Murley told me if I'd had a machine gun, I would have mowed every one of them down. Yeah. Everyone won. And I was like, wow. Yeah. You know, it, and it, I think it was hearing that story Yes. That helped me begin to understand the pain mm. that mm. she and her family had gone through. Yes. And 
So she told me when the verdict came in and she heard that word guilty, she felt like every bit of hate and anger came like flying out of every pore in her body. And you, you know, when the word guilty can't, you know, kind of rang out, you could hear these waves of joy as it cascaded down the hall. Yes. Until it reached a foyer full of people, black and white, who just erupted in cheers. And I felt chills because the impossible had suddenly become possible. You know, Jerry, I've heard you talk about this before. Mm -hmm. People asking you, why didn't you leave these old men alone? Well, and what I often have responded is, well, these were young killers. Mm. They just happened to get old. I think we forget that, don't we? I mean, you know, it wasn't like Beckwith was a different person now. And he said, oh, man, I really regret what I did in the past and, you know, all those kinds of things. But no, not at all. He, in fact, he was proud of it. Yeah. And I think I think something that is is hard for us to do sometimes and what you have chosen to do is it's hard for us to sometimes immerse ourselves into the context of a circumstance and allow ourselves to sit, to sit in it. I remember the first time that my wife and I uh, came to Medgrover's home there in Jackson. Mm-hmm. And the woman who was the tour person that met us there, she Jenny. remembered Medgar Evers. She had known yep. him and remembered him when she was young, uh, a right. college student. But right. as you're there and you realize that they built this home without a traditional front door. Correct. To lessen the possibility of getting shot. That Correct. they built the home with higher windows to lessen the possibility of someone seeing the family inside and killing them, that they would have their children sleep on the floor so that if bullets came through, that there would be a better chance of survival. And the the family living inside that house was a World War II veteran of the greatest generation Uh. who simply sought to help his community. And so I think part of what we have trouble seeing is that rather than these being isolated incidents, like one crazy dude that ended up on Signal Mountain and finally gets convicted, shot one lone victim, you peel it back in the book to help us see that there was an entire... um, kind of like a, a, a construct, a whole social construct that was right. allowing and fomenting and actually affirming these actions as they were unfolding. That's yeah. difficult for us to take in sometimes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You mentioned in the book, you had a conversation with former governor J.P. Coleman about, right. the, about the Sovereignty Commission that was actually helping suppress this. And his comment to you was, ah, it was pretty harmless. In the book, you say that your thought in response to his comment was, 
harmless to whom? Right. Exactly. Okay. We are going to have to extend this to a second episode. All right, because we haven't even talked yet about Vernon Damer. Yeah. We have not yet talked about the Birmingham. burning and the case of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. Right. And you returning back to the Mississippi burning case later. So we're going to have to do that on another podcast. So right. how about this? First of all, um, I want to mention to all of our listeners the book, Race Against Time, A Reporter Reopens the Unsolved Murder Cases of the Civil Rights Era. This is a fantastic read, a, a page turner. It's jaw-dropping. It's exhilarating. There are times when I, I just had to stop, lay it down. A few times, I wanted to throw it across the room. I just want to put yeah, it yeah. Out, right? Uh, yeah. But at the end of the day, we're reading real history, and it's enlightening to bring us to where we are right now. And uh, the other thing that I want to stress uh, to all of our listeners is as we hear these dates, that mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a conviction, you know, 40 years later or 41 years later, it, it causes us sometimes to forget that it's not just that that person was convicted, but in your story about Merle Evers, someone was finally set free from some things that yeah. had been oppressive on her for mm. decades. Is there anything you'd like to say to close us out uh, this evening? That, that's it. It is, uh, not, not to make it too much of a commercial, but the book is available on uh, um, not just, you know, obviously in hardback, but, you know, people like Kendall. I actually got to do the, the audio of, of the book, which tickled me. I was, I was, I, I fought very hard for that. <laughs> in your, so I did, I did the audio book too. I love that. Well, I want to thank you, Jerry, so much thank you. for joining us and we have to take it up again. So folks, be sure and listen in next week as we cover some more of these cases and we're able to circle back around to that Mississippi burning case. Thank you for joining us for the Love First podcast. And we would love for you to get the book. And hey, why don't you get the book and read it between now and next week? And uh, you'll get a little extra insight on these special opportunities to hear the story of how justice finally came rolling down like a river. Uh, Thank you, Jerry, for joining us this evening. Thank you very much.